0: And welcome to the January 2022 Lady Justice Women of the Court podcast. On this episode, the Lady Justices will discuss treatment courts.
1: Drug court teaches all its participants that the only things we can ever truly possess are those things which we cherish and give away with love,
2: including our precious time and talent. And in the end, we are made worthy of the long-promised blessings, reserved for those who do justice and show
0: mercy. Treatment courts are also known as problem-solving courts. These courts provide programming designed to address the underlying issues that bring an individual into the justice system. Many utilize specialized dockets, multidisciplinary teams, and a non-adversarial approach. By offering evidence-based treatment, judicial supervision and accountability, treatment courts provide individualized interventions for participants, thereby improving public safety, reducing recidivism, restoring lives, and promoting confidence and satisfaction with the justice system. That's coming up. Stay tuned.
2: Hello and welcome to Lady Justice Women of the Court. I'm Justice Beth Walker of the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia, and I'm your host for this episode. I'm joined, as always, by my friends, Michigan Chief Justice Bridget McCormick and Arkansas Justice Rhonda Wood. This is the first episode we're taping in calendar year 2022, and I'm so grateful to get to talk to you two again. And before we get started on our official topic, let me ask you whether you are New Year's resolution people. And if you are, how's it going? And if not, how is 2022 kicking off for you generally? Rhonda, how about you get started?
3: So um, it's good to see you both. Um, it's like the highlight of my year so far, I think that uh, <laughs> says a lot about 2022. <laughs> um, so I am a New Year's resolution person, but this year my resolution was to not make a resolution. Um, so I just was not going to put any extra pressure on myself this year. And so that was part of my goal is to sort of limit the um, any sort of extra pressure so that's my resolution is no resolutions so what about you bridget
1: um i'm not really a new year's resolution person but i am um i do spend a lot of time trying to build new habits and unlearn old habits so much and i've actually like been reading a bunch of books about that and some research about it um and ted talks because you know sometimes you just want to get it all really quickly Um, And so I did start a couple of new daily habits in December. I like to get a jump on the new year, but, um, and they're all sort of related, taking stress away and giving yourself a break. So I kind of, I feel your, I feel your resolution around it, but um, I've been now 55 days in a row of walking at least one mile outside. So being completely unplugged. Um, it, and, and getting the fresh air, no matter the temperature or the, you know, if there's rain. There was one day when I was in Nashville for a couple of days for a board meeting, it was pouring. And I kept waiting for a break in the rain and it wasn't going to come. So I just did my mile walk in the rain. Um, and we've had some pretty cold ones um, in Michigan the last few weeks, um, but at one mile every day, unplugged, just for fresh air and, and kind of mental health preservation. Um, In addition to that, I I, I did this um, 40-day personal yoga challenge um, with a personalized um, yoga video made by a friend of mine who's a wonderful yoga teacher. And I did it 40 days in a row, exactly the same time every morning, Um, also just to kind of um, give my brain a reset um, each each day. Um, How about you, Beth?
2: Well, I am... um... I I like New Year's resolutions, um, but I don't have a long history of sticking with them. And as you guys know, I've been on sort of a health crusade uh, generally for the past couple of years. So I try not to limit it uh, just to New Year's. But um, on the topic you raised, um, Bridget, I'm sure you've read How to Change by Katie Milkman. Um, That's on my Audible right now. So interesting in this whole topic of habits and how you uh, sort of shift the way you think about changing, but I've added to my morning, of course, I've mentioned before, I do 20 minutes of meditation slash prayer in the morning. Um, So I've tacked onto that, which is a thing, you can habit stack to try to start new habits. And um, so I've tacked onto that five minutes of writing, I don't call it journaling. I have always been intimidated by journal the prospect of journaling. But I have a little thing, and I write just for five minutes, whatever I'm thinking, and then I put it down. So I've now I just stacked it on there, and that's my new habit, uh, or at least one new habit for 2022. So you know, I continue on my well-being theme, I guess.
1: Yeah, stacking habits is is the is the main advice I'm I'm reading, um, and it does help, right? If you can, if if there's something you already do every day, to then just train yourself to do one more thing right after it, or one more thing doing it. So, like, you brush your teeth every day, at least twice a day, if maybe sometimes more. If you if you're if you want to work on balance, stand on one leg. One leg in the morning, the whole time you brush your teeth, and the other leg at night, the whole time you brush your teeth. Anyway, just yeah, habit stacking is is kind of awesome.
3: Okay, I love you guys. You guys are just like motivating me now. Now you're making me want to change. I'm going to break my resolution. What is it, <laughs> January twenty fourth? I'm going to break my resolution and maybe make a resolution.
2: <laughs> don't 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 call it a resolution. Just just call it a a a thing to do. Try a new habit try to, I'll send you the name of this book. It's, it's pretty interesting. There's a ton of science, which is what Bridget was talking about on this whole behavioral health. I mean, there's a lot of self-help out there too, but there's a lot of really good, like science-based evidence-based stuff. And it actually, as it turns out, it works. So that was fun. Okay. So um, we are going to talk today about some important work that happens in our state courts, but um, doesn't get appealed to us at our state Supreme Courts. As as we've talked about a number of times, um, state courts all operate differently. And we'll talk about how each of ours does in this area in a little bit. And they're also great places for innovation. Uh, Things can happen at the state level, sometimes more quickly uh, or more easily uh, than they can in the federal system. So, a perfect example of something that started out in state courts are things that we call treatment courts. Um, That's our topic for today. According to my extensive research, um, the first drug court was actually started in New York in 1974. And these programs uh, go by a lot of different names, and we'll talk about kind of how they're all different, but um, every state calls them slightly differently. They're called treatment courts or specialty courts, or sometimes problem-solving courts, Uh, adult drug courts, juvenile drug courts, family treatment courts, which are a little bit newer, veterans courts, DWI courts, and mental health courts, just to name a few. Now, when I was elected, I'd heard of these courts, but honestly didn't really know what they were or how they worked because my work as a lawyer, as I've talked about, was not in criminals. So our goal today is just to educate folks about what these programs are and how they operate in all of our states. And what they all have in common, regardless of their names, is that they are a structured program to help people with addiction or mental health challenges start to overcome those challenges Uh, once they become involved in the court system. For example, you you could have an adult facing nonviolent criminal charges who could qualify to participate in an adult drug court instead of going to jail. So that sort of creates motivation that's sometimes necessary uh, in some kinds of addiction treatment. And so you want to motivate that person to address their addiction that put them in the situation to commit a crime in the first place. And so when these started, treatment courts met with opposition, as you might expect. But over the years, they've established themselves as evidence-based and successful at what they do. So with that introduction, let's start the discussion. As I mentioned, I didn't know anything about treatment courts, or very little when I was elected. How about you two? Were Were you familiar with drug courts, and did that affect your interest in being a justice? Let's start with Bridget.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for um, taking on this topic um, Beth. I think it's such an important one for folks to understand Um, state courts do so many different kinds of things and the work that they're doing across the country actually internationally even um, in treatment courts is among the best of the best I think. Um, I was familiar with treatment courts because I did some indigent criminal practice throughout my entire time as a lawyer and a faculty member. Um, I started my career as a public defender in New York City in 1991. Um, Treatment courts were not common at that time, even though, as you note, the first one was founded some 15 years or so before that. Um, they were not. It was not a common thing in the way, or, or, or as common as it is now. And in, in my view, frankly, um, it should be even more common um, because we now have so much data about the success of these courts, not just in um, reducing recidivism, um, but also um, in, in ensuring that the folks who graduate from them are contributing to society. They're usually employed when they finish. And so there are now some really interesting economic studies on cost savings um, as a result of treatment courts, but I know we're gonna keep going on. So let me let me see about Rhonda, what was your experience with treatment courts before you were on the Supreme Court?
3: And I guess to kind of explain to you, Arkansas, our, on our trial courts, um, some states I know have it where the trial courts, you just do like family law or you just do civil or you just do juvenile law, our trial courts for general jurisdiction. And so um, I, what I handled was civil criminal and juvenile. Um, but I had, um, probably a year after I took the bench, the legislature created 13 juvenile drug courts, um, funded them in Arkansas. And that would have been about 2008. And so I applied and received one of the first 13, um, juvenile drug courts. So I ran one. Um, and it was, I, had not ever practiced juvenile law, um, really, and had an experience of that, you know, I was, you know, law professor, taught health laws, but it was fascinating to me, um, and um, especially the juvenile drug court side, you see juveniles and hear about them picked up for, you know, possession and drug use at, you know, 16, 17, and it was startling for me to hear that, you know, they really started um, with, their substance abuse at, you know, nine or 10, 11, and then it developed to more serious drugs, you know, by 16, 17. And so the drug court, you know, for people that don't understand that or haven't been exposed to it, it's really not just about you know with juveniles we don't really want to just incarcerate them as sort of a punishment. Juveniles don't learn that way. Um, You know if you've raised teenagers you know that um, they don't really respond well they actually it backfires. Um, The way is sort of to replace what that's doing to their brain and so um, with the drugs they're used to getting either the high or the low and so you have to sort of do this figure out something that's going to, if they're taking drugs to get high, something that's going to replace the endorphins to get the endorphin level high um, in place of drugs. So a lot of times it was sort of teaching them, exposing them, to working out, like we talk a lot about exercise here, um, to how to get that endorphin level and get that high naturally um, and develop positive habits. Um, and so that was a lot of what was really interesting to me, um, sort of, I had to learn a lot um, by um, you know presiding over a drug court. Beth, I know you wanna talk a lot about how they're set up too, so I'll pass it back to you.
2: Well, yeah, great, and we'll um, kind of sprinkle in. Um, I, I, we didn't talk about this specifically before we started, and I had an inkling you might have been a drug court judge, uh, Rhonda, but I wasn't sure. So that's um, you come at this with the practical knowledge, which is awesome. But I do want to cover real quick how they're set up, and as a review, for example, West Virginia is a unified court system, so that means our Supreme Court supervises all of the levels of courts. And so we oversee the operation of all the treatment courts in our state, including the rules and um, the administration of, and there's a lot of state and federal grants normally as Rhonda referenced actually, uh, that are associated with getting these programs particularly up and running. And that's one of the challenges because then once those grants run out, you um, of course have to be good advocates for the legislature to continue to fund them. Uh, Our legislature has come around to be fans of drug courts and treatment courts and family treatment courts. So it's been uh, a great uh, partnership. As a practical matter, the supervision of the day-to-day operation of these courts happens by one of the administrative offices in our court. As a practical matter, that supervision happens by a division of our Supreme Court, um, the probation division. Not every state oversees probation officers, but ours does. And that's where the supervision of the drug courts happen. In West Virginia, we have 29 adult drug courts that include veterans courts and they serve 46 of our 55 counties, 15 juvenile drug courts serving 22 counties and 10 family treatment courts serving 13 counties. Now, how about Arkansas, Rhonda? Does your your court supervise treatment courts?
3: Yes, so we are decentralized, we're not unified, but each um, judicial circuit has to submit an administrative plan to the court um, and how they are going to distribute their docket. And if they're going to want to do, we call them specialty courts, then we have to approve them um, for them to be set up. And so um, what we have, and then our court has a specialty courts program coordinator, And then an advisory committee that sort of evaluates and um, does annual reviews of all the courts, um, specialty courts. But we have 49 adult drug courts, 16 juvenile drug courts, 14 DWI courts. We have five hope and swift courts that are for high-risk probationers. We have 16 veteran courts, five alternative sentencing courts, two family treatment courts, into mental health courts. And I believe it's about 75% of Arkansas counties are covered by some
1: sort of specialty court. So Bridget, how about
3: Michigan? Pretty similar
1: to both of you. The the Michigan Supreme Court has constitutional administrative oversight of all the courts of the state. So even though it's a disunified system, we provide a lot of um, guidance, training, support, Uh, to the trial courts and the treatment courts in in particular. Um, We, the the legislature funds um, about $17 million for treatment courts every year. And and we at the State Court Administrative Office of the Michigan Supreme Court um, review grant applications for that funding every year. Um, We also also provide a lot of training and guidance, um, best practices, um, and we certify our treatment courts. there, there, there's also um, a, a data collection and uh, presentation that we do every year, so we help the local courts analyze and understand um, the data that's coming out of those um, programs, which is really effective in, in continuing to get funding for them. Um, we have 135 drug and sobriety courts, um, adult, those, those are adult drug treatment courts, DWI courts, family dependency treatment courts, juvenile drug treatment courts, And tribal healing to wellness courts. We have a a number of our tribes in Michigan have wonderful treatment courts. And um, a couple of the tribes that have a lot of resources will also take um, people charged in the local state court um, into their tribal treatment court. um, And they just provide um, the services there. And then the state court... um, uh, can dismiss the case if they succeed. We also have 37 mental health treatment courts, 31 adult six juvenile and 27 veterans treatment courts, which I think is more than any other state in the country. Um, so it's a big it's a big number. Every, everybody in Michigan um, can, can have access to a treatment court um, if, they, uh, if they qualify for it. Uh, that doesn't mean that there are enough spots for everybody. That's a different that's a different question.
2: Wow, that's fantastic uh, to hear all of the services available in Michigan, and, and inspiring too. Um, you all have clearly uh, made it a priority, but it does touch on this issue of who runs these. So, the the basic setup of these courts, and they vary depending on the kind of folks they're serving, but they serve under the supervision of a judge, and there's normally a team of people, including a prosecutor. Uh, You know, and other folks, but the key part of these programs usually is there is a judge involved because, again, we're motivating people to make significant changes in their life and a judge is a person of authority, first of all, and the judge will make the decision about whether if there's criminal repercussions or civil repercussions regarding families, the judge is going to decide so the judge is a key person in these courts. Who are the treatment court judges in your states and do they volunteer uh, for this work or are they assigned? And I'm gonna pass it back to you, Bridget, from Michigan.
1: Yeah, in Michigan, they, they volunteer um, and we, we, we often have more volunteers than we have funding for. And so um, that's, a, that's an, ongoing, an ongoing issue. You know, I, I, think, I think given all of the data we now have coming out of treatment courts, there is a pretty shared sense um, across all three branches of government and throughout the um, judiciary that um, treatment courts shouldn't just be kind of the cherry on top of the criminal legal system. They should maybe just be the mode of how we handle a lot of cases in the criminal legal system. Obviously, not all, but I don't, but, but I mean, but an awful lot are probably eligible for the methodology that we use in treatment courts. So we have. Um, We have more judges volunteering to run treatment courts than we have um, funding for treatment courts. And um, I I think that's a a pretty great sign about the judiciary and and how how the judges across the state view their jobs. Um, So I, I would worry if we were in a position where we had to recruit people. It's a lot of extra work. I mean, being a treatment court judge, is basically volunteering to do lots of extra hours of work for no extra pay. I mean, these, um, you know, who goes to a treatment court will spend, you know, most of the next couple years reporting regularly to that treatment court team including the treatment court judge um, about how things are going and if they had instead um, pled guilty or even gone to a jury trial, the case would have been over in no time and off the judge's docket. So it's a lot more work and it, it says a lot that we have volunteers. How about Arkansas, Rhonda?
3: It's similar. Um, and so yes, the, the judge has to agree that they want to do it and, um, without that, um, you really can't run it. And I, you know, we've had, we've had a few times where, you know, there's been one in a district and a judge is retired where it's like okay who's going to step up and run it and there's been a few occasions where they're all like it's too much our dockets are too high that we can't take on that workload because it's such a significant extra workload for no extra money <laughs> but that's been few and far for the most part it's been the community needs more drug courts the judges in this the staff are willing, um, but there just isn't enough funding. You know, we desperately could use more mental health and veteran courts like you have, Bridget. Um, but we just don't have enough, you know, haven't been able to capture the funding for them to do it. But I think the amount of time that judges spend um, on top of their regular caseload, it's just um, enormous. And you really, unless you're spending time and you've spent time in them, you don't really can't, you know, understand how much time that can take.
2: And, um, and of course, West Virginia is very similar. There's no extra pay, you don't get overtime as a judge for taking on this work. That said, our judges um, are incredible uh, advocates for these programs. And once they get involved, um, and in describing, you know, and Rhonda described it, you know, how you get sort of caught up Uh, Once they get involved, they want to stay involved. We've generally learned it is a very positive, even though difficult and time consuming and uh, all of those things, um, you know, that's how our family treatment courts have expanded pretty quickly because uh, judges raised their hand and said, I want one of those. And we had planned a really modest sort of up and running and that we've got, we've started them much more quickly than we anticipated because we just had a lot of judges who wanted to Get involved and do it. So um, it can be a very positive thing for so many ways, not just the outcomes, but also just in terms of a judge's work, it's um, rewarding uh, for our judges. But what, let's turn over really to the focus of treatment courts, and that is who the people who are participants. Who decides, you know, we need to talk about whether someone can participate in a drug court instead of going to jail or being tried for a crime they're charged with. And I'll kick this off. So for adult drug courts in West Virginia, um, the prosecutors and drug court judges have the final say in who gets to participate in the drug court. Um, It's important to know, and I'm sure this is true across states, people who are registered as sex offenders or who have a prior felony conviction for violent crime are not eligible for drug court. Generally, the participants in adult drug court are folks who've been charged with, pled guilty to, or found guilty of misdemeanor or felony drug related offenses. So we catch people at all of different stages of their criminal situation, not just they've been charged, not just they've pled guilty. It can happen at different parts. And when you turn it over to juvenile, um, that program in West Virginia is targeted to folks, uh, and this is what you mentioned, Rhonda, how young the children are who get involved in the juvenile justice system, but we focus on juveniles 10 to 17 who are nonviolent. And then family treatment courts are a little different because those proceedings aren't criminal. Um, Those are civil proceedings. where the parent or parents face the termination of their parental rights or essentially losing their children because of child abuse uh, or neglect. So they can, in a, in a family cre- treatment court situation, get structured help for their substance abuse as part of their improvement program to try to get their kids back. Uh, but like in drug courts, the family treatment court judge has the final say as to who participates. So Rhonda, how does it work in Arkansas?
3: So it's very similar, and so we have some of the same sort of restrictions statutorily that you know, um, violent offenders, um, sex offenders are excluded from the program. But I think the selection is—it's really important that drug courts um, and the judge and the team slow down that front-end selection and make sure that you're sort of getting the right people into drug court because the slots are limited. And the funding is limited. And so um, I will say that there are a lot of defense attorneys that try to like get all their clients into drug court. Um, And there's this misperception that it's like the get out of jail free card to go in a drug court. That's not the purpose. That's not how they work. And so, you know, drug courts aren't for someone who just, uh, let's say I'm I'm using drug court as an example, but it's not for someone that just, you know, happens to one time possess drugs, and doesn't have a substance abuse problem. It doesn't need that expansive sort of wrap around um, team service approach because they have a, a, a significant problem that they need that sort of lengthy two-year breaking the addiction cycle. The same time that you could have such a serious problem that it's not going to work either, that you're going to need more intensive, you know, inpatient, significant rehab that, the, that it's not going to be. So it's getting the right people into the drug court slots. And if it's like anything else, right, it's hard to break the addiction cycle if they don't want to break the addiction cycle. And so trying as a judge, I'll say from being there, it was like trying to make sure um, and slow that down. So it's not like, you know, you come in, do a guilty plea and plea and say, or uh, sometimes it's pre-adjudication, pre-plea. We're gonna go to drug court and try that. But it's like you have to really slow that process down if you're gonna do it well and make sure this is the right candidate, you know, that it's serious enough they need drug court, but not too serious that drug court's not gonna be successful and that they have the right mindset going in, you know. And so, anyway, I was just gonna say that process, it really takes time to get it right. How about Michigan?
1: It's similar in Michigan. Um, Like like West Virginia and Arkansas, and probably every state, there's a combination of factors. And um, there are statutory guardrails, um, the violent offender guardrail. There's actually, that that guardrail is in the federal legislation um, that funds, you know, there's significant congressional funding um, that largely goes through the National Association of Drug Court Professionals um, organization. Um, And then there are state Statutory guidelines, and we also have a, a violent offender uh, exclusion in Michigan, which actually there's a lot of debate around, especially with respect to mental health treatment court. It's sometimes um, depending, you know, violent offender is a very broad term, and it, it can include um, lots of different people and 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 lots of different offenses. Some of which you might not have even known were violent offenses, and some of which might really be the might really be good candidates for mental health treatment courts in some in some instances. So some of the mental health professional community uh, is advocating for a little bit more of a nuanced um, approach to that. But we, we, can, we can talk about that. But in the meantime, um, like your states, there's, a, there's an addition to statutory criteria. The judge and the prosecutor have to agree that the candidate is a good candidate. And I agree with Rhonda that the candidate has to really be ready for what is um, a much harder process through, a, through the legal system than, than the alternative. Um, it, it's it's uh, th- that front end part of it. I, I think Rhonda said it really well. It, it's important to, to to be careful and thoughtful um, because um, uh, it, it's a hard program, and, and you, you want to make sure that the folks who who sign up for it are really are really ready for it. And it's also resource intensive, and you want to make sure you're giving those resources to somebody who really can make the most of it. So like your like your state's combination of factors.
2: And that's an interesting thing I've learned as I've gotten more involved in knowing about treatment courts and because I would have guessed, you know, just as like a lay person uninvolved that, um, you know, that the model for a lot of these courts is the worst of the worst, who's not a violent offender, who's not a sex offender, so someone in pretty serious trouble, as Rhonda said, not their first offense and I would have thought, well, we want to catch these people early and help them. But in fact, these programs are designed to work with the fact that someone might be almost at the end of their rope in terms of, you know, facing longer incarceration or more serious harm to their already probably difficult lives. Um, so it's kind of a, it's a it seems to be a delicate balance of desperation in some ways, and I don't mean that in a, in a judgmental way, but just as, as a practical matter, as with anyone who is going to start the grueling process of recovering from addiction, you know, you have to have quite a bit of motivation or get some motivation manufactured for you. And that's what these programs um, can do. And so you mentioned, Bridget, uh, the graduation the, is kind of the end point for all these programs, and they call it graduation, even though you don't get a degree.
1: What you know, what is the end result? And have you ever been to a drug court graduation? I have been to many of them. I actually find it to be one of the most satisfying things that I get to do in my job. Um, It's really, it's, it's pretty incredible to see lives transformed by um, a a really hardworking trial court team, um, the, the judge included. And so I, I don't think I've ever said no when I've been invited to go to a treatment court graduation in fact there's one treatment court in one county in michigan a veterans treatment court that i think i've been to the majority of their graduations i don't think i think once you show up once they just keep inviting you and one time there was one in august and my family was visiting from los angeles and i brought my entire family and my niece sang um, uh, the national anthem it literally i literally like inserted my entire family on the veterans court graduation that's how impactful it is and, and how much uh, it means to me the graduations are Try and keep a dry eye, dare you? Rhonda?
3: Yes, and also I, I see you posting on Twitter sometimes Bridget at the graduations. and I just think that's you know phenomenal. everything you do on Twitter, but it's showing and sort of shining a light on them and the graduation and the work of the t- courts, I think is so important and using, you know, Twitter platform to shine that light is, is just something else spectacular that you do. So thank you for always doing that. Um, um, but I'll say that, yeah, the graduations are amazing. Um, um, selfishly, they're really amazing when you've been the um, presiding um, judge. Um, yeah, there's not a dry eye in the place. And, um, and they, you know, usually they they get, it's sort of like everybody's a valedictorian at the graduation. So if they graduate, they all give a speech, um, typically. Um, I don't know if that's the ones you've been to, but when we presided, they actually wrote out a graduation speech and talked about their journey. And um, it just is truly, truly amazing. And um, I will tell you, I, I just, I wanted to mention that, um, that in brag that there's one young woman that had a very serious hard hardcore drug problem, not that all drugs aren't hard, but I mean, this serious, and she graduated from our drug court program, and she went on and became an addiction studies major um, and graduated from college, and she's now treating um, other individuals with addiction issues, um, and so um, just that's what you know, going through the drug court saw her that there was a need for more people um, in the field. So um, it's, it's, it's wonderful, um, I will say for sure. Um, I'll say it's, it's neat being on the Arkansas Supreme Court and a pretty amazing job, um, but that feeling at a drug court graduation is, is pretty amazing as well.
2: And to the point of these, um, I mean, you guys have covered just how inspiring they are and they are, I love going to drug court graduations. They are they're they're especially in you know rural counties. They are a big event. Um, they are a victory in the community. In these small communities, a lot of folks know these people, uh, for good or for ill. And to watch some of these folks you know step up there with their piece of paper with their speech these are not speak these are not public speakers these are not folks who have ever probably given a speech many of them have not graduated from high school or have done you know ged as part of their drug court pro- program it is it is amazing to watch them just shine in the pride of their accomplishment and have their family there the other cool thing is that in some drug courts, in one in particular in West Virginia, in Jackson County, the food is amazing. The, the drug court graduate gets to choose, one of our judges um, has a great relationship with some local catering people and the, the graduate gets to choose their menu. And so it's a very popular one for judges because, uh, for us to go to because the food is, um, is quite something. So that's a sort of an, uh, another bonus for
1: these. Can I, can I tell you guys my favorite drug court, uh, my per- personal drug court story that's a little bit off topic, but not exactly off topic? So, yeah, you may or may know this, but Martin Sheen, uh, President Bartlett, was um, one of the very, very early supporters of the National Association of Drug Court Professionals. Um, he he literally like 30 years ago started figuring out how to support support drug courts he just uh, he's he's someone whose family has been touched by sobriety in important ways um, and he's a pretty interesting guy he he um, he over the course of his lifetime uh, he once told me that he anytime he gets a letter from somebody in prison or somebody in a um, detox facility he always writes them back um, and then and I, I happen to know that he does a lot more than that. He won't talk about it, but I, I know some personal stories of people he has um, done incredible things for. But the National Association of Drug Court Professionals honored him about, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And the entire cast of the West Wing showed up um, to, to support him and, and they, they were you know, uh, quite proud of him. And there's a, another interesting little um, piece of this, which is Melissa Fitzgerald, who also was on the West Wing with Martin Sheen, Left her career, her very successful career in Hollywood, to be the executive director of Justice for Vets, which was the Veterans Treatment Court sort of section of the National Association of Drug Court Professionals, and still works there. She literally oh. left Hollywood and now works full time to support um, drug courts. Um, but anyway, back to my story. When Martin was getting getting this award, he gave this lovely speech, the way you would imagine Martin Sheen would, about um, about how you know healing is not inconsistent with accountability, and um, and that and and you know sort of just about the way in which w- w- we can be a force for um, good by being a force force for healing and and he he talked about somebody arriving at the gates of heaven and and without any without any scars and and saint peter saying to this person at the gates of heaven like what where are your where are your battle scars and and the person said oh i don't i don't have any and saint peter said well was there nothing worth fighting for and it was so lovely. And I've like, literally it's in my, I have like a, like a list of things I keep on my desktop of quotes that I like to remember. And Martin Sheen's uh, recognition at the drug court for, for being a supporter of drug courts for decades without ever talking about it is, is just um, lovely. Because that is just a perfect sum-
2: summary of how uh, important these courts are, you know, and, and the public recognizes they're important. It's not just all of us in the judiciary who are fired up about it. Uh, whether you're a person of fame, like Martin Sheen, or other people in the community who just, you know, are, are believe passionately in the power of the positive outcomes that drug courts, that treatment courts, that problem solving courts, whatever name you want to use. And it's, it's, it is, you know, these graduates retain and regain their dignity, families and lives. So if you want to know more about treatment courts, uh, we've mentioned it a couple of times. The National Association of Drug Court Professionals, NADCP, has a great website with lots of information. Uh, That's NADCP.org. You can also check out the website for your state's court system, For example, I noticed that the Arkansas website has a great five minute video explaining how specialty courts work, uh, which I watched yesterday to prepare, and it was very helpful. So you can check out all those resources. Um, This is kind of intended to be a introduction to treatment court. So maybe we've gotten you interested and you might even think about volunteering in your local treatment court uh, or at least baking cookies for a graduation or something uh, like that. So now we shall turn to our lightning round. Let's get to it. We'll answer as always in alphabetical state order, Arkansas, Michigan, and then West Virginia. And our first question, going to a current trend on Twitter. Um, Wordle, are you playing Wordle? And what's your best result so far?
3: So am I up? Uh, so I am playing Wordle, I think because um, you two dragged me into Wordle. <laughs> and I think um, my, my best is a second, second guess, getting it on the second guess. And it's pure luck, um, pure luck that I was able to.
1: I'm definitely playing Wordle, and you're welcome, Rhonda, um, <laughs> for dragging you into it. Um, I I once got it on two tries, but only once. Today it took me all six. I found today very hard. So best I've done is
2: three tries. I'm in the middle of today's, so um, and I'm at three already, so I'm, I'm not sure it's going very well. It, sometimes I, I step away from it and go back, and sometimes I can figure it out. Okay, I was just asked this question on a recent podcast that I did, so I'm gonna ask you guys, if you could go to dinner with anyone, excluding your family, we don't wanna bother anybody, Uh, currently living, who would it be? Rhonda?
3: Boy, this is really tough. Um, I think that I would go with to Queen Elizabeth II. So I think that's who I'm going to pick
1: um I agree this is tough so I'll give you two I would like I, that that New Zealand Prime Minister how do you pronounce it Jacinda Ardern I want to go to dinner with her she's amazing I think she's incredible um and like Lizzo I'd like to go to dinner with Lizzo
2: You can't lie. (laughs) So on the podcast that I appeared on, my answer, because we were talking law, and I'm going to stick with it, was Sandra Day O'Connor. Of course, I realize she's not making public appearances, but boy, would I love to, to talk to her about how she got started in something that we all believe in, which is civics education. Next question, who or what, I guess, is your favorite Disney character?
3: Oh, without a doubt, it's Belle. Bell from Beauty and the Beast. That shouldn't surprise you guys.
1: So I'm going with Winnie the Pooh, which you might think is not a Disney character, but Winnie the Pooh definitely is a Disney character. So I don't know how you beat that,
2: Beth. So mine is obscure, but I love him anyway. His name is Figment and he's a purple dragon, uh, Figment of your imagination. He was an Epcot little character and now he's really obscure and you have to go on eBay to find a Figment thing, but I still have my little purple dragon Stuffed animal from when I was younger. And looking ahead for Valentine's Day, would you rather receive candy or flowers or something else? Oh,
3: without a doubt, candy. Give me chocolates
1: any day. Yeah, definitely if it's between chocolate and flowers, I want chocolate. No, easy. Um, but maybe like get them get me a massage. Just saying. If you're if my husband happens to be listening.
2: Um, and I am going to say flowers and also disclosed, sadly, that in a conversation with my husband yesterday, I learned that he has not listened to a single episode of Lady Justice, Women of the Court. So <laughs> maybe for Valentine's Day, uh, I could wish for that. Um,
3: what? And with
2: that, I know, he's, I know. An
3: inter- he's an attorney. He went to law school.
2: <laughs> I understand. We're, we're working on it. We're working up to it. So thank you for joining us today. Uh, Thank you for listening. Check us out on uh, all social media platforms, all podcast platforms. Um, We appreciate all of our uh, listeners and look forward to coming back again soon. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Lady Justice, Women of the Court. To learn more about this podcast, access past episodes or find links to our social media, visit ladyjusticepod.com. There, you can also record a voice message with a question or comment. The opinions expressed on the program are the justices alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective courts. Until next time.